There's an old but true story of a young girl named Hattie. Hattie was a girl in a time and place where it was tough to be a girl. Boys took prominence over girls. And even though she was young, Hattie already had several standout characteristics. She was smart. She was very respectful. And she had a high level of social intelligence. Even for a young girl. And to top it all off, Hattie was as cute as they come. Now, as a father of a little four-year-old girl who was starting to fit some of those characteristics, Hattie's story really made an impression on me. You see, when she was a child, both her parents were killed in an accident. And being an only child, she was left without immediate family. And a distant relative took her in. Now, tragedy like that can often derail a human spirit. It can cause a person to wander through life with sadness and depression or in anger and frustration. But this didn't happen to Hattie. In fact, it seemed to only deepen Hattie's humility. It seemed to only deepen her gratitude towards her extended family that took her in. It seemed to only deepen her sense of right and wrong. Realizing the fragility of life brought a maturity and an integrity to this young girl that is rare even in mature adults. In fact, as Hattie grew up, her internal qualities gave her a noticeable inner beauty that even exceeded her incredible outward beauty that really blossomed as she grew into a young lady. Hattie... Hadassah is her full name, was also called by her Persian name, Esther. She lived in the capital city of the Persian Empire with her oldest cousin, Mordecai. Mordecai was also probably his second Persian name. But Mordecai took Hadassah in and raised her as his own child after Hattie's parents passed away. Now, although he was way down the low end of the totem pole, Mordecai was a servant of King Xerxes. He was one of the most powerful people on the face of the planet at that time. In fact, I have a slide here that shows, um, this is actually from Google Maps, but it's a picture, a snapshot of King Xerxes' empire. And way over in the far, that be right Way over in the far right, oh, I got it right, um, is India. And his reign stemmed from India all the way to the northern Egypt. And the capital city was just uh, self-central in what is now modern-day Iran. And it was a citadel city, a fortified city called Susa. Now, King Xerxes was known for three main things. One, he had a very short fuse. In fact, once he was heading off to battle and he wanted his army to make a smooth transition and they had to cross this river. And so Xerxes had his engineers construct this one mile long bridge and, uh, so that his, his army could march over it. Now the day before he was supposed to march over it, there was a huge storm that kicked up and it washed away the bridge. 
Xerxes was furious. His short fuse ignited, and he brought the, the uh, engineers to him and had them killed on the spot. And then he had soldiers take out whips and whipped the river 300 times. As if the river is going to say, ow, and apologize. But that just typified Xerxes. He had a very short fuse. He was known for three things. Short fuse. Number two, he was also known for generosity. In fact, the book of Esther opens with King Xerxes throwing this 180-day feast. It was in his third year of reigning as king, and he decided to throw this huge party. Most of this was to show off and impress all of the province leaders that ruled under him. But Xerxes did one major thing he didn't have to do. Towards the end of that half-a-year bash, <clears throat> he held a seven-day seven party just for the people of the citadel of Susa. And uh, he didn't have to do this, but he included everybody from rich to poor. Everybody, whether they had no money or were an influential governor. Xerxes invited them to the party and gave them royal food and royal drink. One of the, on one of the last nights of that party, his generosity and his short fuse collided. Xerxes and the princes and the governors all had very liberal quantities of wine to drink that night and were feeling very good when Xerxes decided to call out Queen Vashti so everyone can enjoy looking at her. I'm not making this up. She was very beautiful. Now, Vashti was hosting her own bash for all the women leaders. And the king's servants came in and said, can you come before the king so that we could have a look at you? And uh, probably a little bit enraged, probably a little bit embarrassed, she says, no, I won't come. I won't be served up as eye candy. Short fuse. Vashti's time as queen is done. He kicks her out and passes a law immediately that she may never step foot near the king again. Later, Xerxes is uh, sort of missing Vashti, and so his servants say, it's time for a new queen. And so all the prettiest girls in the empire are rounded up. And one of them is Hattie. Well, let's just stick with the name Esther, since that's the one we know more prominently. One of them is Esther. The king is wooed by Esther's outer beauty, and he's also wooed by her inner beauty. And he selects her as queen. Listen to this in Esther chapter 2, verse 20. But Esther did this. <clears throat> but Esther had kept secret her family background. She was a Jew. And nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. That short verse tells us two important things. One, Mordecai was a good, God-fearing Jew, and he raised Esther to be a good, God-fearing Jew. And two, Mordecai wanted to keep their Jewishness on the down low. They're living in the Persian Empire. Now, I can't go into every detail of the story. We'll be here for hours, but I want to talk about this one key struggle that arises. And it really has nothing to do with Esther, but God uses Esther to accomplish his plans through the, through the struggle. Now, the, 
the Bible isn't completely clear on the specific role Mordecai played in, um, as a king's servant, but it seems like he was a gatekeeper of some sort because he was always hanging out by the gate. And uh, on the opposite end, he was very low on the totem pole, on the king's servant totem pole. On the opposite end was this guy named Haman, who was the king's right-hand man. Haman was highly honored and trusted by the king. Now, Haman wanted everyone to he, he bow down and respect him. He was a very arrogant guy. He also had a very large inferiority complex. And so he wanted everyone to bow down and pay respects to him whenever he walked through the gates. Well, needless to say, Mordecai wouldn't do it. The Bible doesn't say exactly why he wouldn't do it. We're left assuming that maybe it was because he, Mordecai's a good Jew and he wouldn't bow to anyone but God. But there was a, a, a tradition, a custom that it was okay to bow to a king, you know? As long as you weren't worshiping, but it was okay to bow and show reverence and respect. So, so we're not really sure if that's the case. But there's a fair chance it wasn't because of the worship thing. There's a fair chance it was because of who Haman was. And I don't just mean because he was an arrogant, insecure, power-hungry, right-hand man to the king. I mean because who he was in his own family lineage. There's a fair chance it was because of who Haman was and who Mordecai was in their family lineage. Look at verse, chapter 2, verse 5 with me for a second. It's described in Mordecai. It says, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. Do those names ring a bell at all? <clears throat> Mordecai is a direct descendant of Saul, the first king the Israelites had. Now look at, with me at chapter 3, verse 1. Now it says, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now that word is just fun to say, Agagite. I'm an Agagite. <clears throat> but if you are familiar with Old Testament names, or, or if that name rings a bell, then um, it, it should cause you to go to the back of the, the, the Bible or the concordance or online or something and look it up, and you'll find that, that uh, Agag was also a king. And Haman is a direct descendant of King Agag, who was a king of the Amalekites at the same time Saul was king of the Israelites, okay? So there's this deeper tension, and it actually goes deeper. We're going to go pretty deep tonight. The struggle actually has some very ancient roots. First, it goes back towards King Saul and King Agag. Now, that was probably months ago in our story series. We probably covered that in March. So I don't know if you remember it or not. Um, I'll just bring some of it uh, to point. But does anybody remember why Saul, who was anointed as Israel's first king by God, lost his favor? Why did Saul f fall from God's favor? Anybody remember? Yeah, he kept some of the plunder. Not only did he keep some of the plunder, but he kept so someone alive. So we're going to look at that real quick. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, <clears throat> verses 1 through 3, the Bible says this. This is uh, the prophet Samuel talking to Saul. 
Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. Okay, that's pretty clear. God's speaking to you here, Saul. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them when they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. And if you keep reading um, God's instructions, he asked Saul to destroy everything, even their cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. He doesn't want there to be a trace. Why? The Amalekites were bad people. If you, if you uh, were to find all the traces of the Amalekites in the Bible and paint the picture, they were mean, they were nasty, they didn't have any fear of God, they didn't have any fear of people. In fact, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and look at verses 17 through 19, you'll find these verses. Remember what the Amalekites, this is God speaking to Moses. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on the journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. So like in one of those uh, nature planet shows, uh, you know, nature shows where uh, like oh, the wolf comes along and he's chasing the herd. The wolf singles out the, the, the uh, you know, the injured uh, animal or the, the youngest animal and then goes after it and kills it. The Amalekites did the same thing to the Israelites. They were weary. They were worn. They were coming up out of slavery, up out of Egypt. And the Amalekites cut off the weak ones and did God knows what. It continues in verse 19. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And then it says this, these three words, do not forget. This is serious business. The, Amalek, the, the Amalekites are bad news. And so what does Saul do? He gets this first act of king. God says, go wipe out the Amalekites. What does he do? Yeah. He doesn't wipe out the Amalekites. 1 Samuel 15, 8 says this. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. There's Agag, who becomes the, the, the forefather of the Agagites. He takes him alive, and all his people... Um, he totally destroys with the sword, but Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. So here we have Haman and Mordecai. And to Haman, Mordecai represents the man who killed Haman's ancestors. And to Mordecai, Haman represents the evil Amalekites. And how Saul's unwillingness to destroy them has come back to haunt God's people time and time again. But it goes even deeper than that. If you turn to Genesis 36, 12, you'll see this little verse. It says, Esau's son, Eliphaz, also had a concubine named Timnah who bore him Amalek. So, Agag is an Amalekite. The Amalekites are descendants of Amalek. Amalek is the grandson of Esau. Do you remember 
a few months ago when we talked about the line of the flesh versus the line of the promise. Well, here it is again. And uh, if you weren't here, let me just refresh your memory. Uh, Two sons were born, twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the son of the flesh. He just goes after whatever his own desires are. He's hungry? Well, you know what? I'll sell my birthright to get a bowl of soup. And so Esau just does whatever he wants to do. But over here we have Jacob, who is the son of the promise. And he doesn't deserve the birthright, but he goes after it. He doesn't deserve the, 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 uh, the first son's blessing, but he goes after it. He's the pursuer of the promise. He's pursuer of the blessing. He's the pursuer of God's inheritance. And Esau is the pursuer of his stomach, his own desires. And so in those twins, you have this, this, this lineage that, that forms between um, sort of child and people of the flesh, of the human nature, and child and people of the promise. And from Jacob, God chooses the Israelites, and uh, the rest of the Old Testament continues. And from Esau, the Amalekites are birthed. And they've been warring ever since. Amalekites really lived up to people of the flesh. They did whatever they wanted. They would come and take the Israelites' crops at harvest time. They would come and steal groups of wives from the Israelites and make them their own. They would come and steal children from the Israelites and make them slaves. The promise and the flesh were always at war. And so that's why God is so adamant, hey, you're in the promised land now. You're the first king. The first thing I want you to do is get rid of the line of the flesh. Wipe out the Amalekites, but Saul doesn't, and a bunch escape. And here we are, Mordecai and Haman. This is how it resolves. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. After these days, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. And then this phrase is a key phrase, for he had told them he was a Jew. So he's linking them back to this ancient tension. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged, having learned who Mordecai's people were. He scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. <clears throat> now, remember I told you that King, King Xerxes was uh, known for three things, but I only gave you two of those things. Did you pick up on that? Okay, I was saving the third for now. He had a short temper, he had a mild generosity streak, 
but he was also famous for accepting bad advice. Infamous for accepting bad advice. In fact, he always wanted um, Greece. And so um, his advisors were always telling him different strategies. Go and get the Greeks. Go and get the Greeks. Go and, Gre-. And, and he would send like 12 ships at a time to go and get the Greeks. And, and uh, they would um, get slaughtered. And it was just, be- he was always, it seems like he, he often accepted bad advice. <clears throat> his pr- pr- propensity for taking bad advice flares up again, and he, without asking any questions, gives permission for the annihilation of a people group scattered throughout his empire, and he doesn't know exactly why or exactly who they are. Listen to verses 8 and 10 of chapter 3. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other peoples and who do not obey the king's laws. He's stretching the truth a little bit there. And it's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I'll put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasure for the men who carry out this business. Haman said, I'll put my own money in there. Kill these people. And King Xerxes says, all right, here's my signet. He doesn't ask who, he doesn't ask why, he doesn't ask how. He He just lets Haman do it. Hearing, this is is a major, major event here. Haman is trying to forever turn the tide on the war against the promise, line of the promise. He's trying to let the line of the flesh triumph here. Mordecai hears this, knows what it means, and immediately begins praying. Esther, Esther sends for Mordecai because <clears throat> Mordecai begins practicing a spiritual discipline that is long lost and partly for good reason. He tears his robes publicly out in this, this city center. He tears his robes and starts weeping and wailing. It's a form of self-humiliation to say, God, I am helpless without you. Word gets to Esther that Mordecai is doing this, that he's torn his robes, that he's weeping and wailing in the city center, and she sends for um, someone to ask why he's doing this. Is he okay? He actually sends Mordecai new clothes. And uh, Mordecai replies and uh, lets her know what's happening and tells Esther that she needs to act on behalf of herself, her family, and her people. Now, remember the first thing that Xerxes is famous for. He's famous for his short fuse. Esther is really aware of this. She knows, she's also familiar with this very famous law that's in practice on a daily basis, that if you were to come before the king and you you haven't been invited, you immediately will get the death sentence unless the king holds out his scepter to you. And so Mordecai is asking Esther to come to the king and have him stop the annihilation of the Jews. And this means that Esther could lose her life. If Xerxes is in a bad mood or doesn't like the request, Queen Esther is going to go the way of Queen Vashti, but even worse, she'll be... To make a long story short... She goes before the king, and the king extends his scepter. And to really make a long story short, the king says, ask anything. 
And after a few, what, what, you know, after a few chapters, she says, I want you to save my life, O king. Save the life of me and my people from the man who's trying to take it. Haman's standing right there, and the king says, Who's trying to take your life? My queen. And she says, This man. His short fuse ignites. Haman is done. Haman's family is done. And Mordecai now stands in the right hand of the king. When the the line of the flesh looked like it was going to be victorious forever, God's rescue plan is enacted through this average girl. And the line of Christ is saved. See, the line of promise would have been snuffed out. And there would have been no Mary and no Joseph and no Christmas. So the $1 million question is, what does this mean for us? Well, I opened the sermon up about the story of a young girl named Hattie. And I did not, not to be creative or try to throw you off, but to help you to realize that Esther was just an average girl. An average girl with a lot of difficulty and tragedy early on in her life. But her, despite her averageness, she had incredible off-the-charts impact for God and his rescue mission. She was able to bless her family and her people and win the current battle between the promise and the flesh. Now, the secret to her success is found embedded in her actions that are found in chapter 4, verses 10 through 17. <clears throat> Our last passage we'll look at, chapter 4, 10 through 17, says this. Then, this is when Mordecai is trying to uh, let her know, and Mordecai says, hey, they're going to kill everybody if you don't do anything. Then she, Esther, instructs him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this, for the king to extend the golden scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days has passed since I was called to the king. He hasn't asked for me in ages. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. I love Mordecai's faith here. Listen to his faith in the promise, to his faith in God. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. That is strong faith. But you and your father's family will perish. And then I love this. This is one of my favorite phrases from Esther. And who knows, and who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night, uh, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. The secret to her success is this. She's reminded of the promise. 
from Mordecai. She's reminded of God through Mordecai. And then she commits herself to the Lord. And she says, pray and fast for three days. I'll pray and fast for three days. And on the third day, I'll rise and go to the king. It's an amazing example for our lives. Now, it would be a major stretch for me to tell you that you're going to encounter an event like this in your lives. Probably not. But on an everyday basis, you encounter micro-skirmishes of the promise in the flesh. Or as Christians after the resurrection, the spirit in the flesh. Daily, we have little battles where we can trust or we can do what's easy. We can step out in faith or we can go with the flow. We could risk or we could be quiet. Every day we have moments that God has placed us in our positions, whether it's work, home, neighborhood, store, wherever, for such a time as this. For such a time as this, God has equipped you with the gifts, the skill sets, the intellect, his spirit, to carry forth his rescue mission. Sometimes we think, oh, if it was that big, if it, if it was a that big of a deal, I could do it. But then in practical reality, these small little things come up, and we just poo-poo them to the side. Oh, yeah, yeah, I wasn't ready for that one. They were asking about God, but I was a little afraid. Yeah, I'll catch him next time. Although Christ has run the, won, won the war, there are still daily skirmishes where God is asking us to be faithful, asking us to risk being labeled a religious nut, risk fear of rejection, risk humility. For such a time as this, will we follow God's lead and be a part of the rescue mission the way Esther was?